Welcome back to Who's Talking. You may have first seen him in a small but memorable part in the Martin Scorsese film Goodfellas. And then you couldn't miss him as the troubled heir apparent in the classic series The Sopranos. Now he's been cast in the prize-winning show The White Lotus, which starts streaming on HBO Max October 30th. Let's hope this time he doesn't get whacked. You've had a few clunkers in recent years. You think? That's not perception. That's reality. Life is feeling stronger than ever now in my life. How would you rate yourself as a chef? Why, I'm not doing that with you, Christopher Wilder. Michael Imperioli, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in and sitting down with me. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So, your new role is starring in season two of The White Lotus. You play a businessman named Dominic DeGrasso. And you go to Sicily with your elderly father and your college grad son. Let's take a look. Flirting is one of the pleasures of life. You're 80 years old. But the women I desire remain young. You can relate to that. I just wanted to inform you that my good friends here, they're going to be visiting me this week, coming and going. They come. I go. See you later. Bye. I see. Well, that looks like fun. Lots of fun. Yeah, lots of fun. (laughs) So who is Dominic? What's his story? Oh, Dominic is a Hollywood uh, producer Uh and uh, studio exec. His marriage is falling apart basically because of... Um, his uh, sex addiction. His marriage is about to kind of end, you know. His wife was supposed to be on the trip with him and his daughter, and they've decided not to come. Um, And he's at a very difficult place in his life. So one of the joys of this show is you can say something, and I think about it, and I go, well, let's go off on this tangent. Do you believe there's such a thing as sex addiction, or do you think that's just an excuse for behaving badly? Oh, no, no, no. There's definitely a thing called sex addiction, you know. Anything that can mess with your brain chemistry can become an addiction, like gambling. You know, when people sit and gamble for 12 hours, there's massive amounts of, you know, brain chemicals spiking and, you know, you're, getting, you're high when you're sitting there at the blackjack table. You know, if, if that's your nature, if you have that kind of compulsive nature, um, and it becomes not really so much about sex as, as it is about, you know, the addiction, you know, the highs and lows and the, the planning of it and the intrigue about it rather than the act itself even, you know, the, the memories of it, euphoric recall, all those things that addicts struggle with. But So how big a draw was it besides doing all the sex addiction scenes? How big a draw was it for you that the entire show was shot in Sicily? Huge. <laughs> that's a huge draw. That was one of the, when they said that shooting in Sicily, it's like, okay. Um, is your family from Sicily? Uh, a tiny slice of my family is most of my family's from Rome and surround, the okay. surrounding part of Rome. Yeah. So speaking of family, your dad was a bus driver. Yeah. Your mom worked in a public school. Yes. And you, the, I'm told that on the night before you were headed to college, the night before to go start pre-med, that you tell your parents, I can't do it, I want to be an actor. First of all, is that true? And secondly, if so, how did they react? It's totally true. Um, I think they knew that I I, I did have an interest in acting, 
part of me, because I was going to go to State University in Albany, part of me really wanted to be in New York City, in Manhattan. Um, I just felt like I belonged there. And part of me really said I wanted to go to one of the better acting schools, you know. And they didn't give you grief or push back? They- no, no. They, I think they kind of knew that that's where I was headed anyway. And uh, they always have been very, very supportive. Look, um, I, I'm fortunate in that respect. Well, it worked out because at the age of 23, you got a small part mm. in the Martin Scorsese classic mob movie, Goodfellas, where you play a kid named Spider. Yeah. Let's take a look. Yeah, wow. <laughs> you wanted a drink. I just asked you for a fucking drink. No, I thought I thought you said that you were all right, Spider. No, 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 no. What do you got me on a fucking pay no mind list, kid? No, that, no I heard. I thought I heard someone say some Spider, Spider. I thought it was Henry. You know you're a fucking mumbling, stuttering little fuck. You know that? Come on, Now he's moving. Now he's moving. So first of all, how much did you want to be in a Martin Scorsese film? Oh, very, very much. Um, so if you're an Italian-American kid who wants to be an actor and you live in New York, I mean, <laughs> that's Scorsese it. and De Niro, this was 1989 when we shot it. That was, you know, that's, that's like going from college to play on the Yankees in the World Series or something, you know? Well, I, and I've, I've got to ask you about that because there you are, Mm. Scorsese's behind the uh, the camera, but they're on the set with you in that scene. Yeah. Joe Pesci, yeah. who's not very fond of you, Robert De Niro, Ray Liotta. I mean, yeah. that that has got to have been, I would think on the one hand, intimidating, and on yeah. the other hand, thrilling. Yeah, you know, it was more thrilling for some strange reason. I, I really like when the stakes are high. Like, I like being under a lot of pressure in, in terms of work, to be honest, you know what I mean? Um, and uh, the stakes were really high. But Marty made me feel so comfortable from the moment I met him and the moment I got there. He made me feel like I belonged there and I was an actor. I, I'd been studying and trying to get work for, at that point, six years, you know. So I wasn't, like, coming out of nowhere. It meant a lot. And uh, I worked really hard and prepared myself really well. And most of what you see is all improvised, which is even more a testament to how trusting he is of actors, especially young actors, working with legends here, you know, and allowing them to just be free to say what they want and respond how they want to respond is pretty, pretty and, and amazing. And the, the big three there, were they nice to you? Or did yeah. they just ignore you like, here's no. a kid, we'll do the scene? And- no, they were very nice, but we didn't, uh, I didn't engage in a lot of chit chat. I didn't want to talk to, the last thing I wanted to do was talk to them about acting because I knew that's not what they, you know, they wanted to hear. And I just kind of did my business. I did something that really took a lot of balls. And I must, uh, you know, and I, I didn't think about it for many, many, many years. And it was because I was green in some ways, but in some ways it was just very, uh, I just kind of trusted my instincts because of Marty, because he made me feel that way. When I, when I got there, I said um, to Marty, to the prop guy, I said, I want to reset the poker table and the drinks and everything between takes. That's something an actor really would never do because it's, a, it's first of all, it's a union job and you don't mess with <laughs> union workers, right? right? 
Well, you really might catch yep. on. <laughs> yes. But the props are very specific. They ha- there's continuity yeah, issues, right. you know, depending on how they're moving the camera around and everything's got to be the same. Marty said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let him do that. Because I figured that's his job is to take care of this, make sure it's clean and the ashtrays are wood, the glasses are filled and refilled. Um, and then I said to, <laughs> they had all the, where I would be making the drinks, I would have to turn my back to the table. And I said to the prop guy or to Marty, I said, no, you got to put the bottles here. So when I'm making drinks, I'm looking at them because that's my job is to make sure that I get them what they need. And he said, yeah, that's a good idea. And they redid all that stuff. Um, Then when I think about it now, I'm like, I would never probably even think of doing that now because I just assume that the prop guy is going to do it right. And I don't need to do that. But there was something instinctual. uh, And Marty made you feel like he wanted you to really live this. But Michael... You still didn't get Joe Pesci his drink. Well, that's why. Without (laughs) that, there's no scene. That's the whole thing. There you go. Then I want, you know, the crazy thing is I wound up going to the hospital in the second scene. Do you you know that? That what happened to me? The second scene, I get killed, right? Yes, right. So I'm walking over to the the table, and I have squibs, blood packs. Yes. You know, right? Which they set off remotely. Right. And... I'm supposed to go flying back into the bar and hit the ground. Three bullet holes. And they have a stunt double. And I said, no, I want to do my own stunt. <laughs> now, I don't do my own stunts anymore. I'm perfectly happy for the stuntman to do his job. But back then, I was very gung-ho about doing everything. So I do the stunt. The, the squibs go off. The blood packs go. I hit the bar. They pad me up. I fall on the ground. And the glass in my hand shatters and slices open two of my fingers really badly. And everyone stops, you know, and, and, and Marty's like, stop, nobody move, because they saw what happened. And it, was re- it was really, it was pretty bad. So I'm on the ground, and I look up, and I see Robert De Niro looking down at me, like, you know, like it looked really bad. And I'm like, oh, man, I was afraid to look at my hand. And like, we got to get you to the hospital. So we go to the hospital, production assistant drives me, and I walk in, and uh, I see like a orderly or a nurse coming at me like with his eyes open. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a movie with Robert De Niro. I cut my hand. And he goes, Code blue, you know, stat, get somebody, get a stretch, whatever. They start saying all these things that I don't understand. I said, no, no, I cut my, sure, calm down. I'm like, no, I'm in a movie. Like, yeah, sure, you're in a movie because I have three bullet holes in my chest and it's Queens, it's New York. They think I'm about to die. You know, they think I'm delirious talking about Robert De Niro. So they put me on a stretcher, wheel me into trauma. And, they, oh. and I'm telling them what's happening. They won't listen to me. Finally, they start going into my shirt and see all the squibbing, the wires. I said, I told you, I'm doing a movie. I cut my fingers. They're like, oh, okay, have a seat. We'll be with you. We'll be there in three hours. Three, literally, two hours later, they stitch me up and I go back and do three more takes. But I think... The take in the movie is the first take. I I hope so. Yeah. All right. In 1999, that is a great story, you get the role of Christopher Moltisanti, Mm. Tony Soprano's screw-up nephew Mm -hmm. in the classic The Sopranos. And here you are with the great James Gandolfini. You want to get caught on shit before that's fucking cowboy-itis? You want to be a big bad guy, Christopher? I was worried that I didn't do it. Shut up! Can I try and explain here? I don't know, Tony. 
It's like just the fucking regularness of life is too fucking hard for me or something. I don't, I don't know. Do you remember that scene? Yeah. You, that scene? I do remember that scene. I like that scene a lot. So, you know, you talked about going from college ball to the Yankees. You're playing with Joe DiMaggio here. Yeah, but oddly, you know, I didn't, I didn't know Jim or his work when I got the, the job. So it wasn't, he wasn't like the star he, he, he became, you know what I mean? He was another character actor, like pretty much everybody on the show. I knew most of that cast from other things, you know, other jobs. They were mostly New York actors. I knew Edie and Tony Sirico and Vinnie Pastore. And um, I didn't know Jim. I had heard his name and he had a good reputation, but I hadn't really seen his work. Um, so, you know, we were just uh, two did, actors who were happy to get, you know, a gig. on. Uh, and, and, and when did you realize this is... Ah, uh, you know, we, we, we clicked right away. You know, um, the first day of work, I had to drive him. <laughs> I didn't have a driver's license, you know, but I didn't tell anybody that because I wanted the job because Christopher's job was to drive Tony. Right. But Michael didn't know how to drive. But I'm like, well, how hard could it be? It's, on, it's a movie. You know what I mean? It's a TV show. <laughs> it's still um, a car. <laughs> and I, wa- I wound up crashing the car, right? I had to drive backwards down the sidewalk with trees on both sides and extras running out of the way, delivering dialogue to Tony Soprano, looking forward. I mean, that's hard to do even if you know how to drive, which I do know. I did it like four times. The fifth time... Boom, right into the tree. The airbags go off. Jim's head snaps back. It's my first day I met the guy. There's smoke. People are running. And I'm like, they're going to fire me, man. This is really bad. And I look over and he's laughing hysterically. Jim loved when the wheels fell off. You know what I mean? He he liked when things went awry. I was like, okay, this is going to be cool. And we we were, uh, a, a lot of the principal cast really became like family. And we spent a lot of time together. We traveled together doing various like press junkets and appearances and things like that and, and and would go out an awful lot in New York together, especially Jim and I and Steve Sharippa and Tony Sirico and Ventimiglia and we were kind of running around a lot during those days. So it was a lot of fun. In season five, uh, you accuse Tony of sleeping with your fiance Adriana. Right. And he decides he's gonna whack you. Right. You lied to me! You were scoring coke with her! She admitted it! So what? I can't relieve stress every once in a while, I don't got enough fucking problems! You sent me to North Carolina so you can fuck my girlfriend! What kind of fucking animal you think I am? The thought never even entered my head! (laughs) You know, I've gotten to, preparing for this interview, gotten to watch some of The Sopranos. And I've fallen in love with it all over again. Mm. Okay, so there's good news coming out of this scene. One, Tony backs off. He doesn't kill you. Two, you win an Emmy for your work that season, including that episode. Mm. And then you throw your Emmy in the garbage? It was more of a symbolic gesture. So uh, we won the Emmy. Uh, Dre DiMatteo and I won that year for Supporting actor, Actress. And the show... For the first time, won Best Show after five seasons. Okay. It did not win Best Show till that year. So everyone was in a good mood. And um, we, you know, we had went to the Governor's Ball and the HBO party. And then we had our own party at the hotel and wound up in someone's room. And it's like five in the morning. And my wife, you know, she said to me, uh, 
you know, I bet you're very proud of yourself, huh? You know, people congratulating you, making a big deal over you, fussing over you, kissing your ass. She goes, I'm not impressed. She said, if you had any balls, you'd take that statue and throw it in the garbage. You know, we were pretty loaded by that, you know, <laughs> by that hour. And I said, I don't care, you know, and I, you know, I, I didn't want to do that, but I had to show, you know, some bravado. And I said, I don't care about that. I took it. Like, this is, a, you know, the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills, the trash can. So, you know, it wasn't like I went into, you know. A, a garbage the, can out Into on. a compost yes. thing and stuffed it in. <laughs> so I, I took it and put it in the garbage pail in the hotel room. And then we went to sleep and then woke up and I said, I'm ordering some breakfast. She said, yeah, get, get me, you know, yeah. Order me something, get some coffee. And she said, uh, don't forget to take your Emmy out of the garbage <laughs> can. <laughs> Is it true that at some point during those seasons, seven seasons on The Sopranos, that you began to kind of model some of Christopher's lifestyle? <laughs> no, I didn't. Mo- I didn't. I, know, I didn't model his killing lifestyle. people, but that you went a little, um, got a little reckless. No, not necessarily. No, I, I just, uh, I think. Um, there, there were times when uh, Steve Schripper said we were, we'd be out and he'd see me turn into Christopher, like get impatient or get angry, uh, things like that. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I didn't model. I, I didn't get into what he was into and to that, those extremes and those, that kind of emotional, you know, uh, recklessness. More, um, you know, I mean, I was drinking a lot during that time, and that wasn't so good for me. Um, But uh, nowhere near the depths that he plunged to. One thing that made The Sopranos so compelling is that at any moment, one of the main characters could get knocked off. During these seven seasons, we'll get to the seventh season in a minute, but during the first six seasons, did you live in fear that at some point they're gonna come to you and say, David Chase is going to say, uh, I, I got to tell you, Michael, um, this week's the week. <laughs> nah, I never, I never worried about that. Really? I thought he I was mean, too, frankly, uh, why not? I thought he was too interesting a character to get, you know. I mean, and not because I played him, but be, he just, as written, and his function in the story, I thought just was, it was just too interesting to kind of let go of. Well, in season seven... They decided to let yeah. go. So uh, the final season, you get in a bad car accident, and Tony decides he now is going to take you out. <coughs> I mean... Pretty amazing, yeah. Pretty, well, it, I mean, uh, it has such power. Such I, so. Here's yeah. the question: I know it's season seven. It's the show's going to a series is about to end mm. anyway. But did that's I've got to think that still hurt. No, no, not at all. No, no. It would have hurt if it was season three, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. Um, but by then we were at the finish line, you know, or almost at the finish line. So it was. I thought it was a really. And uh, David told me about it about a year before, I think how it was going to go down. I thought it was a brilliant way to, you know, both for both characters. 
you know, to close their relationship in that way. Because it really showed where Tony had gone. You know? How far he'd fallen. And how that, far and, Tony And, and how yeah. isolated he felt. Because basically he kills you because he thinks you're going to end up flipping on him like yeah. a lot of other people have. Which may very well have, ha- ha- you know, have happened. Who knows? Because Christopher by then was really struggling with, you know, heroin addiction, which we all know is really destructive and really, you know, dangerous. And, and you know, by that, when you're... If you're that far gone, anything can happen, you know? So, I, but I thought it was a really, really cool way to end their relationship. After the finale of the whole show, you and, and Tony and a lot of the other characters, you'd go to casinos and make appearances. Yeah. You did a podcast yeah. about The Sopranos. You still do a, a, a stage show with yeah. Big Pussy and Bobby Bacala. Why do you think it is? more than 20 years after mm. it's over, people are still so fast. I still want to hear stories. Yeah. And frankly, I'm sitting here. Why do, we, why do we still want to hear stories about The Sopranos? It's a really good question. Um, you know, we do this live show with Vinnie Pastor and Steve Shrip, and, and uh, sometimes you, people come up to ask questions and they'll say, like, this show changed my life. And I'm like, li- I literally people say that. Like, you have no idea how, what an important part of my life this show is. Some of it, I think people remember when they first watched it Sunday nights and they'd watch and they'd have make pasta, have pizza parties and with family members, maybe some of whom are not alive anymore and they mm-hmm. miss those times and they're nostalgic for those days. Uh, other times it's just people really feel, you know, when, when something is something you love, you, like there's certain movies I watch over and over again mm-hmm. and it just kind of makes you feel makes you happy, it makes you feel safe, it makes you feel kind of grounded. People feel like that from The Sopranos. These people, these characters have become very real to them and they're comfortable around them, despite them being, many of them, sociopaths and psychopaths. <laughs> well, but we have that stories, in our lives too. Yeah, yeah <laughs> the stories they're comfortable with, you know, um, they feel like they know these people. And um, especially if you're, you know, from like this area, New York area, New Jersey, Italian-American, you kind of relate even more, I think, because it's so familiar. Any doubt in your mind what the ending meant? You know, I've gone back and forth. Um, I mean, we had David on our podcast a couple of times, and I still I still don't know. Um, I always thought he died, right? So right, it's so the last... Got, for folks who may not know, right. the three of you who didn't watch it, he's in... Uh, a diner with his family and the, the music playing, don't stop believing, right. and suddenly goes right. to black. Goes to black. But then if you think, because there's this guy in a members-only jacket who walks, goes in, goes to the bathroom, he sits at the counter. Someone who's going to do a hit's not going to stay around that long. That doesn't make sense, that theory. And then it's like, um, and then I thought, maybe it's just what you see is what you get. That's the end of the story. There's no dying, there's no what if, there's no what happened to Tony, it's just Ends right there. I don't know. It's mysterious. People ask me that all the time. You know, this I is gotta a show. think that's question number one. That's question number one. This is 15 years down the road. In the years after The Sopranos, you said that you felt something was missing. How did that lead you to Buddhism? Oh, no, I felt, I felt it uh, during The Sopranos, you know, because, um, you know, I worked very hard in my 20s to have a career. And then... In my early 30s, wound up having success with The Sopranos and made some money and, uh, you know, got, kind of got known in the industry 
and awards or whatever, and, and you kind of think that these things complete you, but not necessarily, right? I also had kids and, and wife and family and stuff, and there was still kind of this something um, I think that wasn't tended to, and I, and, I, and I felt it had to do with some kind of spiritual nature, you know, look, you know, kind of figuring out what, what is really important, what, what am, why am I doing what, all this work, what does it mean, what is, uh, you know, so you look to certain things for answers, and Buddhism made a lot of sense, uh, because to me it's almost more of a science than even a religion or a philosophy, it's cause a science of mind, most of it's about dealing with your own mind, rather even than, um, you know, an ethical discipline, although that is a part of it, you know, but um, most of it's working with your own mind. And I found that really important and fascinating. It's only kind of gotten more uh, central in my life, you know. And then there is your indie rock band mm-hmm. called Zopa, Zopa yeah. which is your middle name, your Buddhist middle name, yeah. which, interestingly enough, I just learned means patience, in right? Tibetan, yeah. And And <laughs> you say that people that said to you that that was not, Michael Imperioli, when you were a young kid, you, you would not have been called patient. Um, no, no, I was, uh, I don't know if I'm still, if I still would call myself patient, but. Uh, but let, let me know. just, let me just play this, because this is, you're the lead vocal and guitars in Zopa. Yeah. And we have oh a video. Okay. Ha, 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 oh. Oh, the seven knots unwind You're not like anybody else You're not like anyone else Yeah. Uh, my wife directed that video, Victoria. She yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. Is it true that you're more, actually more into music than you are into films? Um, I think music... As uh, as a um, beholder of art, music maybe touches me more, and 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 I think my musical heroes have made maybe more of an impact on me than even cinema or you know, yeah. A few years after all of that, you went on the on food show Chopped, and you won the tournament. <laughs> Of stars, and yeah. along with it, fifty thousand dollars, which you used to fund schools in Tibet. Yeah, we have a clip of that. Oh no! Oh really? yeah! Oh, that's here. You are one of my finest moments. Well, I have cilantro here. Mm-hmm. Take some. Uh, I get cilantro. I get jalapeno, and I get tequila. Italian Americans, you're going to deal with food. I think I actually had a line on Sopranos. It's like food, food. Is that all we have to think about? I thought it was hilarious. You know, actually, there was a lot of food in The Sopranos. Tons. And, yeah. and it was one of the things that felt the most authentic. You really felt like you're in that family. They'd be talking about some kind of yeah. meat or whatever, a sopracetta. And it, you felt, ah, it gives me a feeling for this. Where'd you learn to cook? Um, well, I worked in, I, when I was 19, I got a job as a cook at a place called Exterminator Chili, which was in Tribeca. That's an exciting name. I think it was right before it became Tribeca. It was, a, it was like 1985. Exterminator Chili. Yeah, it was, it was a cool place. And I was a horrible cook. I mean, I was just really bad. <laughs> I did prep cook and then I did line cooking. And I, I just wasn't good. But I did learn kind of fundamental foundational things about cooking. And then 
after uh, we had kids, you know, I, I, we, we, uh, we were both really busy all the time. My wife had a bar and I was working. We'd always get in takeout in restaurants. I got sick of everything. And I wanted food that I grew up with. So this, I had never seen Chopped. And they, they were doing this celebrity tournament. They offered it to me. And my kids said, oh, you got to do that. They said, you, you could win that because I'm really good at, um, I'm really good at making stuff from whatever's in the fridge, right? So, you know, I can put together, right. you know, whatever's there. Whatever's there, you'll strange. be able to make a meal. They said, that's what you have to do. So they said, you should do it. You, you'll win. And I wound up winning this tournament, and we gave money to uh, my teacher. Garchan Rinpoche has a, he sponsors these um, schools. And also, they also do elder care in a very remote part of Tibet. And some of these kids are the first generation of their families to go to school. So that money went towards kind of building, I think, the second one and, and maintaining them for a while. So it went to good cause. So that's cool. You spent so many years playing mob figures in good, Goodfellas, Sopranos, I don't know if other things as well. I got to figure that you met some mob figures over the years or got to know them. What is your sense is the biggest difference between the life of the mob in reality as opposed to what we see on television? Or movies. Um, I think the difference is now at this point in time, especially in New York, most of people who were maybe part of those five families are just more entrenched in legitimate businesses because it's, you know, the RICO Act made it very difficult on mobsters because for a charge like loan sharking or extortion, which in the past you might go away for a year or two, you facing much more time. Right. So it kind of wasn't so effective. So it, it, it made more sense to just, you know, use whatever wealth they had to kind of invest in real businesses. I think, I, I, I think so. I think that's what it is. Um, you know, I met, when you meet someone who tells you that's what they do, you know that's not what they do. Because no, it's, it's like the fight club. Nobody yeah. who's in it talks about it. Once in a while you meet people like, I do what you do. And I'm the real, you know, and you know they're not. Because, you know, the, the people who actually are, and there are, you know, people who, who are made people in the mob, they, they're never going to, they're never even going to say that even if you are friendly with them for quite a long time. Nor would I ever ask that. <laughs> you know, that's not so, polite. So if I've learned one thing from our sit-down together, Michael Imperioli, it is, if somebody tells you he's in the mob, yeah. he's not. He's not. <laughs> and, you know, you, a tell, you know, I, there's a couple of people I do know, and the thing you will notice about them, when you, if you meet them for lunch or dinner or something like that, usually they're there first, and they're never, their back will never be to the door. Can I tell you something? I once met a hitman. I, I interviewed him for another another show that I did. A hitman uh, for the Philadelphia mob who'd written a book. This is when everybody decided to write books. The Code of Omerta went out the window. And we, we go into the restaurant and I go to sit with my back to the wall just because it and he, he beats me and kind of pushes me. And I think to myself, the last thing I'm going to see in my life is him looking up and going, Frank, no. <laughs> there you go. Michael. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. In addition to acting, music, and cooking, Michael also writes books. A novel called The Perfume Burned His Eyes and Woke Up This Morning, A History of the Sopranos. 
which he co-authored with fellow show alum Steve Sharippa. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next.